Good evening. Biden promises 500 billion doses of the vaccine for poor nations. A lawsuit targets diplomatic relations between Israel and Africa, the Black Caucus on the crisis at the border, and Black Lives Matter speaks out on Mayor de Blasio's drive to get dirt bikes off of New York City streets. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, September 22nd, 2021. And U.S. President Joe Biden and his French counterpart Emmanuel Macron will meet next month as the countries work to repair relations following a diplomatic spat that broke out over a security pact with Australia. The two leaders spoke by phone and agreed to meet in Europe at the end of October. The Biden administration drew the ire of the French government last week when it announced a security partnership with the U.K. and Australia that excluded the European Union country. The agreement, which will see Britain and the U.S. help Australia acquire nuclear-powered submarines, led to the nixing of a conventional submarine deal between French and Australian governments. Meanwhile, the United States, U.K. and Australia unveiled a new alliance dubbed AUKUS, A-U-K-U-S, on September 15th, saying it aimed to improve stability in the Indo-Pacific region. And in Washington, President Joe Biden announced today that the United States is doubling its purchase of Pfizer's COVID-19 shots to share with the world to one billion doses as he embraces the goal of vaccinating 70 percent of the global population within the next year. The United States is buying another half billion doses of Pfizer to donate to low and middle income countries around the world. This is another half billion doses that will all be shipped by this time next year. And it brings our total commitment to of donation of donated vaccines to over 1.1 billion vaccines to be donated. Put another way, for every one shot we've administered to date in America, we have now committed to do three shots to the rest of the world. More than 5.9 billion COVID-19 doses have been administered globally over the past year, representing about 43 percent of the total population of the global population. But there are vast disparities in distribution. The World Health Organization says only 15 percent of promised donations of vaccines from rich countries that have access to large quantities of them have been delivered. And in more news from Washington, Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks says the Pentagon plans to implement recommendations from the Independent Review Commission's investigation on sexual assaults in the military. To date, sexual harassment and sexual assault remain serious problems in our force with lethal consequences for our service members and harmful effects on our combat readiness. This administration has placed an unprecedentedly high priority on this challenge set. In fact, in his first day in office, Secretary Austin issued a memorandum to department leadership tasking them with reporting data pertaining to sexual assault and sexual harassment. In accordance with Secretary Austin's guidance, our approach is holistic, addressing all of the IRC's recommendations. About 100,000 incidents of domestic abuse have been reported in the military since 2015. The military has not kept comprehensive data on the problem, though, so it's impossible to assess the full scope, although testimony by victims told of a violent culture of impunity. And the battle over who will get either the fame or blame for raising the United States debt limit is embroiling Washington this week. The debt limit is a nearly century-old artificial cap that Congress placed on the U.S. government's ability to borrow. It's been raised nearly 80 times since 1960, but this time – 
with a deep partisan rift underscoring how the debt limit has evolved into a political weapon. House Democrats voted yesterday to suspend the debt limit through the end of 2022, a proposal likely to meet fierce resistance in the evenly split Senate. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell claims the U.S. government would never default. My advice to this Democratic government, the president, the House and the Senate, don't play Russian roulette with our economy. Step up and raise the debt ceiling to cover all that you've been engaged in all year long. So no effort on their part to describe our position as irresponsible makes any sense because the facts are indisputable. This is a totally democratic government. They have an obligation to raise the debt ceiling and they will do it. And as Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, the World War One era cap is now $28.4 trillion. During the Trump administration, the debt limit was suspended three times. The last suspension passed on a bipartisan basis in 2019 when the debt stood at $22 trillion. A group of international lawyers, researchers and activists last week filed a complaint with the African Commission on Human and People's Rights seeking the revocation of Israel's observer status at the AU. One of those attorneys is New York's Stanley Cohen. He says the observer status was granted by a single member, the representative Chad, and Israel is not deserving of the recognition. It was filed with the African Commission on Human and People's Rights, the judicial commission slash court process that oversees the African Union. They're sort of the, for lack of a better word, they are the mediator of disputes within the African continent. They are the court, or at times we are had as a commission that oversees complaints under universal jurisdiction that have to do with activity with regard to the African Union, individual states and collectives. Uh, in this case, we brought an action before them seeking uh, the revocation, which was granted uh, really strangely enough, essentially by an executive order while the African Union legislature was not sitting by an executive member who granted Israel uh, observer status at the AU, something they've been chasing for over 20 years without success. What's the AU? Uh, it, the, that's the African Union. It's a collective of the 54 states of the entire continent of Africa. Is Israel part of Africa? No. It allows them a, a megaphone to participate in discussions, to participate in, in oversight, uh, in ways that Israel is not entitled to. It rewards Israel for imposing the same kind of apartheid and colonial control that has been the arch enemy of the African continent for over a century. It provides a bridge for Israel to rekindle this pernicious relationship that it has held with Africa going back for decades. It's been one of the primary weapons producers and suppliers in Africa for decades. It was one of the last supporters, if not the last supporter, of South Africa during apartheid. It assisted South Africa in building nuclear weapons before the end of the apartheid system. It was involved in uh, the Rwanda slaughter, the genocide. It has played a role in providing weapons to, in Kenya. It's had a very pernicious behind-the-scene role, and the observer status allows it to come out from beyond the clouds and to play an active and public face and role in the politics of a continent that it has no right to participate with. What about China? There's nothing that stops states 
um, that that uh, from from entering into you know bipartisan agreements with other states throughout the world, but you can't compare the human rights record with the problems that China is having these days with Muslims, and I'm not going to play that down. The history of China vis-a-vis Africa as compared to Israel, the history of Israel here and now with regard to 11 million stateless Palestinians versus what's going on with China, um, we're not we're not suggesting that that Israel should be barred. Although I would like to see individual states in the African Union uh, participate in the BDS, we're not suggesting that we have a right to intervene in decision making of individual states. If they want to enter into a relationship on an individual basis with Israel, if they want to enter into agreements, if they want to enter into covenants or treaties, that's up to them to make their own choice. But this was a decision by the by an executive leadership of the African Union, which represents human rights, which represent a constitutional drive for liberty, justice, freedom and equality throughout Africa and outside, and which is committed to ensuring the same process for oppressed people throughout the world. And when you open the door and you allow the world's leading oppressor, Israel, to walk in, to take a seat near the table and to participate in the exchange and the colloquy, it not only violates the fundamental aspect of the African Charter and the African Union, but it is in essence inviting the same sort of neo-colonial project back into the circle that has been the primary oppressor in China, in Africa, for 150 years. New York Attorney Stanley Cohen, in the past, he's represented the organization Hamas, which rules the Gaza Strip. And in news that straddles the border between international and national events, conditions are deteriorating in a camp on the banks of the Rio Grande River, where thousands of mostly Haitian asylum seekers have gathered in hopes of getting asylum in the United States. Images show people with small babies and toddlers under makeshift shelters made out of reeds in Del Rio, Texas, just across the river from Mexico. Images emerged last week showing the U.S. Border Patrol on horseback using whip-like cords to intimidate Haitian migrants and asylum seekers trying to cross the river. Although the migrants are often eligible for entry to the United States as refugees, they've been turned away under a Trump-era rule as a possible health risk from COVID. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says it's time to drop the rule known as Title 42. So I urge President Biden and Secretary Mayorkas to immediately put a stop to these expulsions and to end this Title 42 policy at our southern border, that we cannot continue these hateful and xenophobic Trump policies that disregard our refugee laws. We must allow asylum seekers to present their claims at our ports of entry and be afforded due process. The policies that are being enacted now and the horrible treatment of these innocent people who have come to the border must stop immediately. I yield the floor. At its peak, there were as many as 14,000 people cramped out under the International Bridge in Del Rio, but U.S. authorities have moved thousands away for immigration processing and deported more than 500 Haitians since Sunday. Meanwhile, at the Capitol earlier today, Democratic members of Congress criticized the treatment of Haitian migrants at the border. Members of the Congressional Black Caucus, the Caribbean Caucus, the Haiti Caucus, and the Congressional Hispanic Caucus all spoke in front of the Capitol during a rainstorm and universally denounced the shocking images. The news conference came after a meeting with senior White House officials and called for the suspension of Border Patrol agents photographed on horseback rounding up Haitian immigrants. In the uh, letter to the administration – 
caucus members reminded the White House Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas announced an 18-month temporary protected status designation, TPS often called, for Haiti, allowing eligible Haitian nationals residing in the U.S. as of May 21st to begin the process of staying in the country. Where is the compassion? The House members asked. The chairwoman of the Congressional Black Caucus, Congresswoman Joyce Beatty of Ohio. Today I had the honor of taking eight members of the Congressional Black Caucus and leadership directly to the White House. And part of that was to speak to those deplorable photos and ask, one, that all those recognized riding horses using their reins to chase down Haitians like they were cattle and goats to be suspended, terminated. How can you send someone from Central America, whether it's Brazil or whether it's Chile, that has not been to Haiti in a decade or more and drop them off? I don't need to tell you, we know of the earthquakes, we know of the assassination, we know of the unrest and that it is a failed country. The co-chair of the House Caribbean Caucus, the Honorable Maxine Waters. I'm not just unhappy with the cowboys who were running down Haitians and using their reins to whip them. We are following the Trump policy. What the hell are we doing here? What we witness takes us back hundreds of years. What we witnessed was worse than what we witnessed in slavery. Cowboys with their reins again whipping black people, Haitians, into the water where they're scrambling and falling down when all they're trying to do is escape from violence in their country. And the children who are unfortunate to be in this situation must be allowed into the United States immediately. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, but immediately. Another co-chair of the Haiti caucus who has a very substantial Haitian-American population within her constituency in Boston is Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. It is an unprecedented humanitarian crisis one that demands a humanitarian response. But instead of leading with compassion and grace, these families have been met with cruelty. We can and we must do better. The Biden administration must halt these deportation flights and allow folks to make a legal asylum claim, which, by the way, is a human right and legal. Haitian lives are black lives. And if we truly believe that black lives matter, then we must reverse course. Uh, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee of Texas. The Haitians should be defined as stateless persons. Many of them have not been to Haiti in a decade. They've been in South and Central America. We thank them for that opportunity. But there is a collapse that has caused many of them to flee. In fleeing, one can question whether they can go back to those countries that are not their home countries. One has to determine whether or not you can go back to a country like Haiti that is in a collapse. And so what does this mean? It means that they can be declared stateless and that we can provide uh, the State Department and others to craft a more humane and responsive uh, action for them. In addition, a relic, Title 42, exists. 
It is a relic of the Trump administration. It was created to be mean-spirited. It was created to give those who are riding on horses the comfort, I can do this. And who are these people? I've never seen this massive numbers of people of dark skins coming across uh, the border in this number. Have to understand these crises meet people in their place. I know America can do it. Don't take the narrative of those who want to demean all of us that came from somewhere else. Listens to the Congressional Black Caucus. We are the conscience of the Congress for black Americans and for those black people and others around the world. Members of the Congressional Black Caucus, the Caribbean Caucus, the Haiti Caucus, and the Congressional Hispanic Caucus at the U.S. Capitol today. The administration is also facing pressure from Republicans who say the White House has lost control at the border. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Today for Climate Week, New York State Governor Hochul announced major progress in the modernization of New York's largest clean hydropower project. Linda Perry reports. New York State's new governor, Kathy Hochul, who is used to traveling throughout the state as lieutenant governor, today delivered a Climate Week message from Lewiston. That's in western New York State, about seven miles north of Niagara Falls and about 25 minutes north of Buffalo. She announced the modernization of the Niagara Power Project. We are launching the Next Generation Plant, which is a $1.1 billion 15-year modernization and digitization program that's replacing aging equipment with world-class technology. Hochul delivered this Climate Week address at the Robert Moses Power Plant Assembly Bay near Hyde Park Boulevard. It's a hydroelectric power station owned and operated by NYPA, the New York Power Authority. It diverts water from the Niagara River above Niagara Falls, and it returns the water to the lower part of the river near Lake Ontario. It came online back in 1961. This is basically as audacious as the Erie Canal was when that was first built. And people said, are you kidding me? Can you really do that? And we got it done in four years. Now, why should we care about that hydroelectric power station near Niagara Falls? Gil Quinones is an electrical engineer, and he's president and CEO of NIPA. The New York Power Authority is the largest state-owned electric utility in the United States. We produce about 25% of all electricity in New York, 80% from clean hydroelectric power, largely from here, Niagara Power Project. And we also own and operate a third of the grid, the power transmission system. So think of NIPA as the backbone and the shock absorber of the power system of our state. And Governor Hochul points out that it's the workers at NIPA who kept the lights on during the worst parts of the pandemic. Did everybody notice that their lights stayed on? The power continued to flow into your homes and your businesses during a global pandemic. Who do you think made that happen? It's the men and women, and many had to be sequestered literally for 30 days in trailers because we could not afford to have someone who knew how to unleash this power that is so necessary, the lifeline across the state. We couldn't have them go down with COVID. So they literally sacrificed 30 days alone away from their families to make sure they stayed healthy during the pandemic to keep the lights on in the state of New York. Let's give all the members of this family an incredible round of applause for their sacrifice. 
The Niagara Power Project's Life Extension and Modernization Program is called NextGen Niagara. It was launched by then-Governor Andrew Cuomo with the goal of transitioning New York State to 100% carbon-free electricity by 2040. It's a goal Governor Hochul is pushing ahead. Linda Perry, WBAI News, New York. Thanks, Linda. In more New York news, a judge has lifted a temporary pause on the city's vaccine mandate. That means all teachers and other city workers must be vaccinated by Monday or lose their jobs. A separate decision on state mandate for health care workers has been delayed. More than a month ago, Mayor Bill de Blasio said all teachers must get the shot by September 27th or lose their jobs. The state said the same for health care workers. 17 healthcare workers filed lawsuits and several municipal unions sued the city, saying the mandate violates constitutional rights and that it shouldn't be a condition of employment. The United Federation of Teachers says while it believes its members should get the vaccine, it should not be a condition of employment. The city says the latest numbers show 87 percent of teachers are already vaccinated. And finally, Mayor Bill de Blasio and ranking members of the NYPD held a press conference last week at the city's Department of Sanitation site near Fresh Kills Park on Staten Island, where they ordered the demolition of more than 40 unregistered bikes, motorcycles, recently seized by police. But the spokesperson for the Brooklyn chapter of Black Lives Matter, Anthony Beckford, tells WBAI the mayor's quality of life push is about the election and contributes to inequities in the city. The mayor's quality of life campaigns are nothing but, you know, self-serving vanity projects. Yes, people have been complaining about these motorcycles, but the thing is, if we have nothing for our youth, what are our youth going to do? They're going to find entertainment. If he was a true mayor, a true leader, what he would have done was actually say, you know what, let me put the funds forward so that way I am able to build the actual dirt bike arena. Or just, or dirt bike park, whichever he wants to name it, you know, in order for these youths to actually learn how to actually ride dirt bikes, ride them, ride them safer, and be entertained, and actually be able to take those talents elsewhere, you know, to compete, you know, to be able to gain scholarships and so forth. The restaurant industry would collapse, it seems, if you didn't have people riding electric bikes. Is there a certain uh, inequity in the way the different vehicles are treated differently by the authorities? Definitely. Before they were used by businesses, they were cracking down on them. The mayor was cracking down on them. They were taking them. They were giving people summons and so forth. But as soon as the businesses started taking it and using it for their benefit, which means more taxes to the city, that's when the city said, hey, let's make sure that we're able to um, protect the right to use these vehicles. When you look at it at the end of the day, if it's not making the city any money, that's what a lot of these elected officials, especially the mayor, do not care to have it. And that right there is an equity all in itself because a lot of people use these as alternative methods of transportation. The MTA is not doing its job to make sure that we have proper service. We've had service cut. Uber and Lyft are price gouging right now and they're expensive. A lot of these kids, this is the way that they get around. This is the way that they get to their friend's house. This is the way that they go out there and have fun. But it seems like every time that there's something going on in the black and brown community, it's always something to respond with destroying what they built, police involvement, the fines and summons. It's, it's ridiculous. What I need the people to realize is the fact of that it doesn't matter how little this may be on their radar of bias, it's still bias and it's still there. Little, these little things like this actually help to continue to feed the bigger issues. How about the actual, like, the guttural feel of watching uh, all those bikes crushed by a front loader? 
it had no impact. You're having a little thrill. Literally, he looked like a five-year-old child who just got a bag of candy. That's literally how he acted, and it was ridiculous. It was actually embarrassing to see that because while other mayors are trying to tackle COVID, are trying to make sure that their schools are having remote learning options, our mayor's out here having fun as if he's on a Muncie truck rally. You know, he was just entertaining himself. And at the end of the day, you're looking at thousands of dollars worth. So that's money that a lot of these people put in, that they worked hard for. You're showing that you don't care about the hardworking money of New Yorkers. It shows the separation in class as well, too. This is classes in one-on-one that we're seeing and experience here in New York. And it's getting ridiculous. A lot of people who are complaining are not people who originally are from New York. Unless, and we're going to be very real about that. This summer in the park, there was a lot of conflict because some of the kids were riding their bikes in Washington Square Park. And there was uh, the mayor and the new mayor. And I wanted to ask you about that. The new mayor actually said he was going to crack down with law and order approach. They all need to sit down and relax themselves. Right now, a lot of the talk is because it's the general election. So a lot of them want to get points from a lot of conservatives, a lot of the Republicans because they can vote in the general election. We need to forget about all that. You know, we need to be very honest about ourselves because the language of law and order, we see where that got us in the, <laughs> for the past uh, four years before Biden got in. Law and order does not look good for black and brown communities or black and brown people. Law and order doesn't look good for those who are impoverished. Law and order doesn't look good for those who are working class. The language of law and order only serves those who are elite and those who are privileged. We have to stop with the behavior of catering to that that language and also catered to those type of policies. If we truly had law and order, there wouldn't be police brutality reports every minute. If we had law and order, NYCHA wouldn't be abusing the tenants with the conditions. I've worked with Eric Adams on a couple of things. I've worked with de Blasio on a couple of things, but they both know that I'm not a person that plays around or mints words for any of them because at the end of the day, it's about accountability and it's about what is right for the people. And if it's not right for the people, then we're going to be against it. We're going to hold them accountable. So they need to ease back. A lot of people continue the traditions that they've been doing for all these years before the privilege or the newcomers started complaining. If you don't like the culture, don't come where the culture is. Anthony Beckford is spokesperson for the Brooklyn chapter of Black Lives Matter. In the first quarter of this year, eight people reportedly have died in dirt bike or off-road vehicle incidents, and about 350 were injured during the same time period in the city. Authorities project that by the end of the year, between 2,500 to 3,000 bikes will be removed from the streets of New York City and destroyed. That's compared to about 500 in 2020. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, September 22nd, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is James Ursay. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.